Welcome and thank you for tuning in to the Life with Behavior Analysis podcast. I'm your host, Miss J, and I hope that you enjoy today's show. Let's dig in and do life together with Behavior Analysis. Welcome and thank you for tuning in to the Life with Behavior Analysis podcast. I'm so glad that you've joined us today. I have three very special guests for you. I'm really excited about this topic and I'm pretty sure that anybody listening is going to be excited as well. Today, we are going to have Miss Candy Shaw. She is an occupational therapist and BCBA. She has a master's degree in special education and received a graduate academic certification in autism intervention. She has been providing interventions for children and families for over 25 years. She currently works in early intervention and has worked in public schools, university-based programs, private clinic, and home-based services. She lives in Texas uh, with her husband and her three children and two grandchildren. She is passionate about supporting and coaching families and caregivers who are unable to access useful, factual information addressing concerns regarding behavior and the, the many domains of child development. You can hear her and her husband on their podcast, Little Hands, Big Victories on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. We also have Dr. Katherine Peterson, who is the Associate Director of the Intensive, Intensive Pediatric Feeding Disorders Program at Children's Specialized Hospital and Assistant Professor in the Department of Pediatrics at Rutgers University, uh, excuse me, Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson Medical School say that three times fast. <laughs> Dr. Peterson received a bachelor's of science from the University of Nebraska at Omaha in 2006, a master's in behavior analysis from the Pennsylvania State University in 2008, and a PhD in behavior analysis from the University of Nebraska Medical Center in 2013. Dr. Peterson spent five years as an assistant professor at UNMC before moving to New Jersey this past year to begin developing a new pediatric feeding disorders program through Rutgers and Children's Specialized Hospital. Dr. Peterson serves as the, on the board of editors and as a guest action editor for the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis. She also was a recipient of the 2017 Society for the Experimental Analysis of Behaviors Contribution of the Year Award for research on effective treatment of food selectivity in children with autism. We also have Sophie Millen, who is a board certified behavior analyst and speech language pathologist licensed in the state of Oregon. Her mission is to support individuals with significant behavior challenges in reaching their communicative potential. She earned her master's of science in speech and hearing sciences from Portland State University and completed a graduate certificate in applied behavior analysis at the University of Cincinnati. Sophie is an adjunct professor or instructor in Portland State University's ABA program and early childhood education program and works as a BCBA for a school district. So everyone that is listening, please, if you will, give you a round of applause in your car, wherever you may be for our three guests. And so today is gonna to be just a little bit different with our podcast. We're actually going to be reviewing some research that Dr. Peterson has so graciously given us the permission to review and go over. And it's called, if you're looking for it, a comparison of a modified sequential oral sensor, sensory approach to an applied behavior analytic approach in the treatment of food selectivity in children with autism spectrum disorder. So without further ado, I'll let Dr. Peterson go ahead and talk about this, this amazing piece of research, what she's found, um, the findings, the discussions, all of the good things that come with research, which I love. 
um, and let us get started. So Dr. Peterson, if you will, let's talk about this amazing piece of research that you have, like what made you want to, to study feeding therapy, feeding selectivity, food selectivity, um, and what were some of the steps that you had to develop to get to this point? Uh, that's an excellent question. Um, I, well, I guess to take it back a bit, um, when I first got into behavior analysis, I was, you know, principally interested in working with children with autism. I know a predominant number of BCBAs um, tend to work in that area in this field, but uh, so I started down that road and over time, almost by accident, I was introduced um, to a more specialized area of research and clinical work, which was treatment of feeding disorders. And I was immediately fascinated and felt as though I had finally found, you know, that area that I really wanted to, to devote my time and research toward uh, throughout my career. So um, after spending quite a bit of time studying with Dr. Piazza and her lab, um, for any folks who are familiar with feeding literature, I'm sure you've come across her brilliant work that she's done. So I feel as though um, it was excellent to have that exposure and training from her. And in that time, um, in my early parts of my training um, and clinical work, we noticed that a lot of children were, who were referred to our program had previously gone through other types of interventions and had, for whatever reason, not progressed. They hadn't reached some of their feeding goals like age typical eating or um, acceptance of a wide range of foods. Uh, and oftentimes what we found was uh, one common approach that we saw that kids had been exposed to was called the sequential oral sensory approach mm -hmm. or SOS. Um, and that was kind of a repeated finding with, with kids coming into the program. And when we did a quick internet search and we've done this a couple times since, we found that actually the predominant um, treatment modality offered to families of children with feeding disorders in the US and abroad, right? Or at least in the past five to 10 years has been the SOS approach. Okay. Um, when we looked through all the different types of clinics that provide services for feeding therapy, it's predominantly a sensory integrative or, or the specific SOS approach. Um, and we found that interesting mainly because there, at the time there hadn't been any empirical studies um, that we could find that had evaluated it you know, in a systematic data-based way. There was um, a couple commentaries on it. There's a lot of advertising and trainings out there and a dissertation that looked at larger outcomes, but no studies that really um, evaluated any of the components or compared it to a behavior analytic treatment, which we already knew had a wealth of empirical support, was very effective in treating feeding difficulties. So uh, our group decided at that point that we wanted to try and do that, uh, to set out to learn about that intervention strategy, to evaluate it comprehensively and then compare it to behavior analysis. And then it became um, the focus of my dissertation. So that's uh, where I was able and had the, the benefit of really sinking in about three years of my life um, to this study and this particular uh, research that I did. Okay, so for those that don't know, what is the SOS approach? Uh, so the SOS approach is, I'm going to look at my slides here because I have, um, although the re, uh, folks can't see it if they're listening. Um, so I just don't want to misinterpret anything about it. So it, um, although the term sensory is in there, um, it's, it's very much different from general sensory integration therapies. Um, the way it's designed and, des and trained is that there's a direct emphasis on social role modeling from peers during mealtime situations, mm -hmm. um, 
they place an emphasis on cognitive learning through uh, different motor exercises and then using food as a tool. Um, and what I mean by that is they are, um, take uh, principles rooted in systematic desensitization mm -hmm. um, to gradually expose children to the different sensory properties of food or characteristics of food. So it could be smells or textures or colors or temperatures um, while simultaneously teaching the child to engage in a competing relaxation or enjoyable response, like play with the food or games or deep breathing or blowing bubbles, um, doing all kinds of different activities that would perhaps um, change the way in which the child's interacting with food from that of being aversive and, and going away from it to wanting to seek it out and play with it um, okay. is sort of the, the strategies they take. And it's much more complex and complicated than just that quick overview. But in general, they use this long graduated sequence of steps to expose children to these different properties of food and then and progress along those, those sequences, if that makes sense. Yes, it makes perfect sense. Um, and Ms. Sophie, I don't know if you wanna jump in or say anything about SO, uh, SOS or Ms. Candy, by all means, feel free to jump in whenever, whenever you like. Um, so you looked at ABA tactics or, or principles of ABA and you looked at SOS. So what all did you guys do in the research? So in the research, the I would say one of the biggest challenges we came across is that these two treatment modalities are vastly different. Mm -hmm. So behavior analytic approach, um, which is very um, almost rigid and systematic and protocolized, you know, you do the same thing every time. Uh, there's a prompt, there's a presentation, there's a timer, there's another prompt, there's praise, you know, it goes in a very specific sequence according to a protocol. There's equal opportunities of exposure throughout trials and everything. That's typically how we arrange feeding sessions when we do therapy. With uh, the SOS approach, it is meant to be more fluid in nature. It's meant to be child-led, um, not as much therapist-led. And so I think one of the real challenges we faced was trying to find a unit of comparison. How do we compare an apple to an orange and do it fairly to determine which one um, was, was, if they were equally effective, if one was more effective than the other. Um, and so to do this, we, um, we tried to hold as many variables uh, or control for as many variables as we could, hold as many um, constant across the two interventions and then just, but still keep it intact and do it as it's prescribed. Um, we would, so basic kind of study method was that uh, we recruited six children. All of them were diagnosed with autism and food okay. selectivity. And we randomly assigned children in pairs. Um, so we would take in two at a time and one child would start out with SOS and one child would start out with ABA therapy. And we would, um, work with them week by week individually using their respective treatments. And after a certain amount of time, we checked in on both and determined, you know, where is each child at? How is, um, uh, I'm trying to think of my pseudonyms in the, in the study, but how is this child doing relative to this child's progress? Um, and then if at typically um, SOS is implemented in like 12 week doses. So mm -hmm. one child might go in for SOS therapy and go through a 12 week course. And if there's not, um, you know, clinically significant changes, the therapist might prescribe another 12-week therapy session. So we started with 12-week as our first benchmark. And at the 12-week point, we checked in with both kids. And if the child in ABA was doing really well, but the child in SOS wasn't, 
we went a little bit further. Um, and then if there was still no progress, the child who wasn't doing well switched over into the other intervention. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. So what were the outcomes that you found in this study? So what we found, and I always like to um, preface this statement with this was the first and only study that's been conducted and it's just with six kids. Uh, but what we did find was that all three children assigned to the ABA approach did very well. Um, they were taking bites of all three of their target foods within the first or second appointment of ABA treatment. It was highly effective, highly robust. Um, with children in the SOS group, none of those three were taking bites or um, are accepting and swallowing bites throughout their entire exposure to SOS. So they eventually transitioned over into ABA. And when they did within the first or second appointment, they were taking all their bites right away. And so it's a very robust finding. You know, we, right. we observed with just this small number of participants, this really big finding. But um, I, I always encourage folks after they read this or listen to a presentation that this was the very first step. We have a lot more work to do to continue researching these methods. And because it is so popular and common, it, I know it's likely generating effective results for kids. Um, and we wanna like try to isolate those variables that are you know, responsible for behavior change and what's going on with this whole approach. Right. So I also like to ask or, or to look at what limitations are in a study, just to see how in the future we could replicate the study to find more, you know, get more findings and to see if um, the current study is, is one that uh, will carry that longevity, will, will show the same kind of results over and over and say, okay, for real guys, this actually is, <laughs> it works. It's a good, you know, this is a good thing. So what were some of the limitations that you found in your study? Uh, so a couple of limitations that we identified were perhaps those um, rigid aspects of experimental manipulations that what I, which I mentioned at the front end, which uh, you know SOS is meant to be a more fluid and child-led approach, and we still had to apply some level of rigor to be able to measure the responding. Um, we added elements of integrity checks, and we took data on their behavior on specific acceptance responses, um, and so we you know, identify that that could be just a limitation and that we added some of those elements and that wasn't, you know, how it typically is done in practice. Um, another thing is, and this is a, you know, a big one, but one I, I'm pretty strong on is that, um, you know, I, I was the therapist across both. I, I did attend the SOS training. I went to a, back in that day, it was, um, it was offered as a five day or a three day training, but you had an option to add a two day intensive like addition to it. And so I did all five days. And then I repeatedly was in contact with the creator of the approach to clarify certain procedural details, make sure I was doing it as I should. Right. Um, we created a very comprehensive protocol based on that training, but I'm a behavior analyst. You know, right. I, I, the large bulk of my experience has been ABA, not SOS or any other type of related therapy. So, you know, I always like to acknowledge that there could have been an inherent bias toward ABA. Why I say I was strong on that is because I really wanted to give this, you know, a fair shake. I was very much interested in the outcome. Um, I tried very hard to do it as I've, as I was trained. Uh, so, right. and we took integrity, but that's always a bias. And so I always say for future research, I strongly encourage occupational therapists or other professionals who do this 
regularly and have much more experience with it to test it out as well. Right. Um, because I think that's incredibly important. Awesome, awesome. Any questions from Ms. Candy or Ms. Sophie about uh, the study or your experiences with SOS if you have any? Um, I, I did have to, um, well, I have a couple questions. Um, I'm pretty, I've come across um, individuals I've worked with in the past who have used SOS, um, but I haven't ever implemented it myself or really truly observed it. Um, I was curious if that formal training that you attended is required or typically recommended for clinicians who would be using SOS or if it's more of an optional kind of um, educational experience. That's an excellent question. Um, no, it, to my knowledge, it's required um, that you wouldn't have access to any of the formal protocols unless you attended the training and, and went through some of that instruction from those folks who put that on. Um, we described the method very specifically in our, in our published study just because of, you know, the rigor with which you want to disseminate research, but um, we still, I would still, I mean, you, I would still recommend if you wanted to replicate this study or implement SOS in general to still go through the training and get those necessary, necessary exposures before doing it. That was an awesome question. I didn't even think to ask that myself. So I wanna switch gears just a little bit with the three of you and let's talk about food selectivity. Let's talk about um, our kiddos on the spectrum who aren't ingesting those you know, healthy foods or eating mainly starches and junk food and things like that. Parents are at their wits end. Behavior analysts aren't trained uh, necessarily in uh, feeding treatments or feeding therapies. So just to start out, like, what do you think are the first things that parents and behavior analysts should look for with a child who has food selectivity or who's not um, ingesting those foods that are, are healthy? Anybody can go first. <laughs> I'll, I'll take that. So when I see a child that has a uh, food selectivity, I'm I'm looking at, and we all know that there's so many layers to a little one, not just their learning history, right? Um, but also these um, physiological things that um, we haven't seen with our own eyes that these parents are having to deal with. And um, I, I look at what, what types of food are they accepting and what are the, the characteristics of those foods? And um, I have, in early intervention, I've had to learn and rethink about the way we naturally chew. It comes so easy to us. Mm -hmm. But the little ones who haven't had those oral motor experiences haven't met their milestones in the in the, uh, the the sequence that we expect them to. They've missed some of those pieces, such as chewing and moving their tongue. Um, a lot of my little ones, um, they will. Um, I will have identified, um, you know, a, a tongue tie or mm -hmm. a lip. And so they've had all of these months and years of moving their food around in their mouth in a limited manner. So it's having to relearn and, and they have chosen to select the foods that are easy to chew or digest or manipulate. And so when we think about those foods, sometimes those things that are easy to manipulate in their mouth are the ones that they're choosing. Mm -hmm. so, um, more than just um, behavior aspect of it, that it tastes good or looks good. Cause that's what we look at when we want to choose. Right. Definitely. How's this going to feel in my mouth? Am I going to be able to manipulate this? Well, and so, um, I, 
there's just, there's so many aspects, I think, of food selectivity that um, I'm, I'm still learning every day, every day to look at food differently, look at the, the seating arrangement, the kitchen environment, the family member who is feeding that child the spoon, and, and every, every aspect of that uh, interaction and that routine in the home, and then the learning history that has happened in the past with whatever medical conditions they have, whatever GI issues that they've had, their oral tone, um, how, you know, I mean, we're gonna talk about this because we're all professionals, but how long has it been since they've had a bowel movement? Those kind of things are things that we have to think about when we are setting down and, th and looking at the way the child is consuming foods. I think that's really, a good um, start to to that question because I can tell you in seeing a lot of my my kiddos with food selectivity issues, I never thought of the seating arrangement at the table. I never thought of um, the spoon that the parent might be using. You know, you look at you rule out your medical. Um, your medical causes of the particular behavior. And once those are ruled out, it's like, okay, let's put in these protocols to get this child to consume different types of foods. But I never thought of just something as simple as who's feeding the child as a barrier, a possible barrier to food selectivity. So that's really, that's really interesting. And I see a lot of parents um, project their own preferences mm -hmm. on their child. And I see parents who have children that have had a hard start and may have had an experience of choking and gagging that scared the family, mm -hmm. scared the, the parent or the caregiver. And you can see that reflected on their food preferences too, because they're not going to reintroduce that food again because it scared mama right. and scared the child. So um, those kind of things um, have a, a continuous effect on that, that feeding uh, experience. Right. I can, I met, uh, remember there was one time my son uh, was eating, I think it was a piece of steak or something and it got stuck in his throat and I had to do the Heimlich on him and it scared the living daylights out of me. Now he doesn't have, um, he's not diagnosed with autism or, or um, he doesn't have food selectivity, but that whole episode as a parent was I was enough to make, like I cried, I, I was hysterical after I, you know, got the food out of his mouth, but I can only imagine, you know, for a parent with a child with special needs having to go through that type of experience. And if I felt like, you know, having a, a complete fit afterwards, I can only imagine what it felt like for a child, you know, for a parent with a child with special needs. Um, I think, oh, sorry, go ahead, Candy. No, go ahead. I, I was just going to chime in, um, you know, I think you brought up some really important elements to consider and I would agree that, that the longer I work with individuals, the more I, I realize there is to notice in the environment and the stimuli. Um, I, I wanted to add just as an additional thought um, that I'm guessing you um, all probably feel similarly with is that I think it's really important for behavior, behavior analysts, especially those who um, are newer to feeding or might not have a lot of specialized experience in it, um, to really pursue a team-based approach when targeting feeding. Um, I know it was mentioned to get that medical clearance right. And ideally, we all know that for a number of, of behaviors we're gonna provide intervention on, um, but 
I would really recommend, you know, really pushing for the pediatricians given they're okay. They've had their oral mechanism examined and not necessarily a swallow study, but there's a look at their swallowing mechanism um, by an SLP. Um, And then I know OT has quite a bit of overlap with us in that area as as well. Um, But we're really evaluating swallow safety and any issues with the oral mechanism. because it's at the end of the day, that can be such a serious, in addition to affecting treatment, there is that chance that there is an actual risk that's going to increase the likelihood of choking. Um, And I think that's something um, for me, I really didn't honestly even realize until I was pursuing my speech pathology degree. Um, And then also working, I think when possible with a dietitian or nutritionist who can also um, give some input, especially if that child has a really limited diet um, of what might be priority foods, um, in addition to what the family's requests are to bring in. That's a really good point too, is to look for a dietitian or nutritionist. I probably wouldn't have thought to look for one of those either. Um, just because, you know, you usually think of a dietitian or a nutritionist as someone who's going to help you lose weight or, <laughs> or, you know, somebody that's going to help you, you know, kind of get your feet, your own, um, dietary concerns under control, like you're eating too much sweets or something like that. Um, so I think that's important to, to note as well. So say I'm a parent, I know my child is selective with their food, their feeding. I've done the swallow study. I've done the, um, the check, you know, did the medical check with my providers and everything is a go. Where should they start? Anybody can jump in. <laughs> that's a, I mean, that's an excellent question. And I think one that unfortunately probably a lot of families struggle with because um, it's dependent on so many things. I, you know, if um, including things like insurance and whether their child does have a diagnosis because that could change which providers maybe they could seek out or which, you know, codes are used to bill for services for things like that for feeding specifically, because I, as that, that's solely what I do. I only do feeding therapy and it can be very hard to get um, third party payers to cover that treatment as an ABA benefit. Um, so I, I do often recommend that caregivers, um, you know, I'm, I'm of course a proponent of behavior analytic intervention because it is the only empirically supported intervention there now for feeding disorders. So I'll say, look into behavior analytic providers in your area and then do all those medical clearances, make sure everything's ready to go, and then seek out um, those providers to determine whether they offer that type of service or they have that level of experience to provide that. Because um, I think it was, I, I think both of you, Candy and Sophie said, you know, without having either that team approach or that someone there to, um, to have that offer that specialized training, um, it can be a risky therapy. and. Even if, and I think sometimes kids with autism, folks are less likely to be worried because the typical presentation of like food selectivity in autism might be that they eat a lot of junk food. So they are eating food. They're not maybe like a child who is tube fed and has never eaten by mouth. And so maybe with a child with autism, a provider might be more likely to say, oh, they're they're safe because they're eating all this other stuff, but they could 
miss something like an allergy um, and maybe they're throughout the course, they're feeding a child a certain food and it's causing an allergic reaction or mm-hmm. um, maybe they're, the child is silently aspirating and they didn't know because they thought, oh, well, he's doing fine with these other textures and I didn't think to check this other thing. So I always strongly advise you know, medical clearance first and foremost, and then seeking out experienced folks who can really navigate and then staying in touch with professionals like uh, SLPs and OTs and, um, and medical physician, physicians who can weigh in throughout treatment. So not just at the very beginning, but periodically throughout, if you see like a rash emerge, right. it's good to have a team close by that you can reach out and say, hey, I think he needs to have allergy testing, you know, things like that. That's a good point too, is to, you don't think of food allergies most of the time. It's just like, oh, the child is not eating his vegetables. The child is not eating fruits. Let's introduce all the fruits and all the vegetables and see what, you know, see what they take to. Um, But you don't think of, you know, a kid being allergic to strawberries, which I I do know some children on the spectrum who are allergic to strawberries. And I've never, you know, prior to being in the field, never heard of a strawberry allergy to be honest with you. So um, I think that's a good, that's a really good point that we need to consider all of these different, these little things that you may not have considered in just in general practice. So what other things, I guess, Ms. Sophie or Ms. Candy, do you think that a parent should look for or where should they start with food selectivity in their child? I'll take that. Um, I happen to uh, uh, work in early intervention and um, we are blessed that we have a lot of different therapists. We are multidisciplinary. And when when you uh, qualify for services through our program, um, we um, can address any any outcomes. So even if you qualify under speech or something specific, we can work on all activities of daily living or anything that it's important to that family because we're right there in the home. Right. I'll have families that uh, initially may be referred to our services for one thing, but then once we start talking about their routines, because we do like an assessment or routines behavior assessment, and we look at um, what's going on in that uh, mealtime routine, and then we can address that. So I think for families who aren't sure that their feeding issue or their food selectivity is really warrants uh, intervention, I think starting with an early intervention program is good because you can address those things um, and during those outcome addressing um, moments when the, the, the therapist comes in and you'll have access to, in our program, we have access to a dietitian as well as OTPT speech. And wow. Services. That's really awesome. I, I think a multiple discipline approach is the best for any behavior that you're working on, but especially it seems like the more that we talk, the more I see the gravity of working on food selectivity if it's not just, oh, I went to one training or I sat through one conference on food selectivity and now I can go and do this particular procedure or I can do this particular protocol. So for the behavior analyst or the speech pathologist or for the OT, what kinds of things should we be looking for in in our children before starting, you know, besides the medical, we've cleared the medical piece um, of of the treatment, but what things should we be looking for as a a professional or as a clinician? Um, As far as like, we know the child has food selectivity, but what other things should we be looking for? I think that um, also 
probing, you know, a bit, you, you, you've decided it's safe to approach this issue. You're consulting with medical providers. Um, if you're a BCBA who's got some level of experience, but it's not necessarily um, your area of expertise, you're still new to it. Um, both, of course, having, having someone that can mentor you is great, but also um, looking at um, maybe seeing if you can more informally target um, new foods and see um, not necessarily would the SOS approach. And I would you know advise obviously using our behavior analytic approaches in whatever way you're doing this, um, but seeing what kind of behavior is evoked when new foods are presented, because I would also suggest that the more extreme um, or more intense the behavior of, um, around food refusal is, the more likely that child might need that more specialized um, approach and from a provider with specialized experience. Um, I know I can say for, for the area I'm in, um, we don't really have any, we don't have any specialty clinics that utilize BCBAs. Um, and I think um, it's, it's challenging, I think in a lot of areas of our country um, to find that higher level support but um, again, you also don't want to get kind of stuck in trying an intervention that's not really working because you're not quite prepared to, to look at it um, from that, that full, um, looking at all of the, the aspects that might be affecting it um, and just really, really identifying when to seek extra help um, or try to refer, refer on if possible. And I, and I think that's a tough call sometimes because there's not always an option down the street to send a, a child to. That's what I was just thinking is that, you know, for those those uh, parents or those providers who are in rural areas or who don't have access to a specialized clinic or other BCBAs who have that specialized knowledge, what should they do? I mean, aside from looking for a mentor or, you know, going on their own to research, to do the research, what should they do? What recourse do they have as a clinician to help these kids who have these food refusal and food selectivity issues? Uh, so I, one recommendation, I guess this is kind of like a, a three-tiered one. Um, one that I provide to folks when I do trainings or workshops is that, um, you know, the first is always making sure the child's ready. Um, the second thing would be to uh, similar to what Sophie was was recommending to um, start very small. And I've um, recommended some things like just adding, you know, you're not really going to intervene directly on food selectivity yet or or even do things to evoke high levels of problem behavior. You could just start small by, um, you know, after the, the parents have identified it's a problem, you've seen that the child's diet's limited. So maybe you start by just, um, adding some structure to the mealtime or do minor antecedent type strategies to see if sometimes even small changes can result in a difference in responding from the child. Um, so I have, you know, I have a whole bunch of strategies that I would recommend. There are ways to, you know, make the meal very, very predictable, um, very structured. So the child knows exactly what to expect when they sit down you know, it's timed, you, it's only one bite. And if you do the one bite, then there's this great thing. And if you don't do it, that's fine. It just ends at a certain time, you know, and building from that point so that you're not, you know, going straight to escape extinction or some intensive intervention to treat, you know, very problematic mealtime behavior. Um, so I, I often recommend to start small and just move slowly 
and when possible, seeking guidance from experienced clinicians. I know our program does a fair number of consultations. So I've reached out and worked with BCBAs all over the country. Um, and, a, you know, and that's a, that's a cost that some folks are able to incur. Maybe some families are willing to put forth that additional fund to get that specialized training for the BCBA working with their child. Um, but usually what I found when I'm working with BCBAs is it takes a couple times where we're working intensively and I'm giving them feedback on cons consulting through a case and then they're able to kind of break away and do the rest on their own. And it doesn't right. take this long, lengthy, expensive process. It's really just kind of some boosting along with, um, you know, helping them to develop some protocols and to access the literature that I think would be most relevant for that child's case or things like that. Um, so I, you know, that's always an option to look into is reaching out to some programs like the one we're in, or um, there's, you know, at Kennedy Krieger at Marcus in Atlanta, there's, uh, there are those specialized programs, all those SPARs that you can, many folks are amenable to that, especially with, um, you know, telehealth technologies where right. you have the capability of observing a meal if, if you need to and, and, and consulting with uh, trained professionals in that manner. Awesome, awesome. Any other suggestions from Ms. Sophie or Ms. Candy? Well, I was just gonna say, um, you know, she talked about, uh, Dr. Pearson talked about some antecedent procedures that we can do. And I think um, some of the procedures that I have taken from uh, Winnie Dunn, who is, you know, paramount in our, uh, the sensory integration field, um, the things that she talks about are things like priming, visual supports, mm -hmm. social stories, and I love using all of those. And I've found that um, even our little bitties, even our little toddlers can benefit from those. I mean, a, a toddler recognizes the golden arches. There are things, right. <laughs> right? So pictures are, they work really well. And kids who are, you know, using technology already, they know images, they know what the, that means. And, and Sophie can uh, verify how, how well we are able to use visual supports with our little ones. And so that first then, those kind of visual supports, um, those uh, social stories to, and those things that we can prime, even with a timer that says, okay, that you can start using a timer for things that are really beneficial. And then things that also um, indicate when it's time to eat and when the feeding time is over. I think if you implement those in their regular environment, in their daily routines, because I'm, I'm almost certain that that escape uh, motivated behavior is not only during mealtime. I think right. probably going to see it in other places in their world. And probably maybe as a toddler, they're not having, to, they don't have that many demands on them. And then this is the first demand that they have been given because now they're required to eat and, and they're a toddler. So that's typical for us to want to, to assert our dominance in, in that. Right. So um, we um, can use all of those strategies all across the board, bedtime, nighttime, bath time, and start to use that. So whenever we want to use those interventions at, when they're in the high chair or at the table, it's not gonna be new to them. And it's gonna be something that maybe, maybe addition to something that has been able to be uh, paired with some uh, positive reinforcement along the way. Good, good, good. So I have one other question for you guys. So what about those parents? What do you say to them who are like, my child is only eating starches and they're not getting enough nutrition? Like how do you approach the parents and their concerns as a BCBA, as an OT and SLP? How do you approach the parent and says, you know, yeah, we're going to work on this, this feeding, but it's going to be, a, it could possibly be a very slow process. What do you say to the parents? I, you know, I, 
usually takes some time to, to kind of go through those conversations. I think most often parents are happy that someone's willing and able to start working toward it. I know, um, and this is not to speak negatively at all about like pediatricians, but you know, they're um, physicians and everything. They're primarily focused on, you know, health and growth and, and general um, well-being and things, but sometimes just, you know, getting my child to expand their, their variety um, is a harder, you know, there's not a pill for that. There's not an easy, quick, um, you know, road to take sometimes. Sometimes it's going to just be a little bit lengthy of a process. So I do my best to support the family in any way I can to answer, you know, be very available to answer questions and, um, and have them be a, a critical part of the treatment process so they can choose which foods we're going to start with. And oftentimes if you get success with even just one food, um, I think it can be really encouraging for families if, if you start small, but then, you know, having just little successes that starts to add up and they can see that it's working. And even if it's moving slowly, we're making steps toward that ultimate goal. And um, so I just do my best through just support education and um, keeping them as a, as a critical part of the process. That makes sense. Miss Candy, Miss Sophie. Also, I'd note I'm um, working with, um, you know, depending on the age of, of the child, when we're working with those early intervention kiddos, um, for me, those have been the families where there's maybe a little bit more of that hope that it'll be a faster process. Um, so I very much agree with having those conversations, um, you know, in a, in a direct but very compassionate manner um, and listening to the parents and really working with them to set those goals. Um, but also with some of the older individuals I've worked with, um, some of those parents where their children were school age, um, getting older and had maybe already been in, in and out of several feeding therapy attempts. Um, I What I also came across was sometimes just parents wanted the reassurance that we'd be, we'd be there and willing to work through it when it got tough. Right. Um, because they had tried, um, I don't wanna say for sure SOS for instance, but they had tried different types of therapy, you know, what, with an OT and then maybe with speech and then maybe gone to another program um, and everything, it always kind of reached a dead end. Mm -hmm. uh, so also just really providing a lot of, of support and encouragement. And, and honestly, I think um, really it was one of those times where I feel like having sort of that counseling ear can be important too, because for some of those parents, right, your child's nutrition is might be one of the most important things that, you know, your, your job as a parent is to help your child grow and thrive and flourish. So sometimes those experiences for these families where they're seeing their child not be getting that adequate intake or they have health concerns related to their diet, um, that I think can create a lot of um, potentially, um, you know, some trauma for those parents. And, um, and I think also just really being realizing that that parent support is um, always important, but I found can be particularly um, important to be attending to um, with those kids. That makes perfect sense. The other thing I, I just wanted to interject, you made me think of this, Sophie, was, um, you know, I try to equate eating, uh, I think, and then I think Candy mentioned this too. It's not, you know, it doesn't always come natural for little ones like it does for adults. Like I see a plate of food and I'm hungry and I'm like, it's it's happening. I'm eating that right, right now. <laughs> that's not the same for little kids. So we have to have patience knowing that it's it could be a really hard skill. They could fatigue quickly it's, you know, they don't have as much history chewing tougher food. So maybe we need to break it down and work slowly and teach each skill separately, which might be each food separately. 
Um, so I kind of take it from that learning paradigm where it's no different than learning a new skill that's maybe hard and, and maybe they don't like it. So we just have to work through it and have patience with the child as well. Um, it's just another kind of angle to, to view things at. Right. And I, I liked what Sophie was saying about, um, you know, being sensitive to our, our parents, because, you know, when we come in and we say, we, this is what you're feeding your child, but I think you should feed them this, that implies that, that whatever they've been doing up until now is wrong. Right. So um, what we use a primary coaching model in our uh, early intervention program, and it's something that I've had to learn to adjust to um, coming from other fields. And I really appreciate it because we um, we kind of talk them through, well, why do you think that's not the best food? What kind of food would, would you think is better? And then when we get our dietitian on the team, we can talk about things that are you know culturally appropriate or things that are common in the home and take one step towards something else. And um, sometimes when those you know, we all know if we can get parent buy-in, we, we right. have made. And so when we can get the, the parents on board and realize that we're not judging them for where they've been, because, that, because like Sophie said, you know, that's what they've been doing. Their, the parent's whole life is feeding your child, you know, You're feeding right. your child, making them happy. And then when we have to bring on these, these new ideas about um, not allowing them to escape or not allowing and allowing them sometimes to be unhappy or to to cry about some things and we're going to continue to present things that maybe they they don't prefer then um, that's totally changing the, their world for them and so um, sometimes we have to be sensitive to that and have them be on board and help us kind of collaborate to make those decisions it makes perfect sense so before we wrap up um, are there any parting words for BCBAs and parents or any stories that you may want to share about successes in the feeding realm <laughs> or just anything that will encourage, you know, those that are dealing with food selectivity and feeding issues um, after they, you know, listen to this episode that, you know, give them a, a little bit of hope. I'd like to share a story from actually my, my very first job in ABA years ago. Um, I worked with an individual with autism um, who had a very limited diet. Um, just, yeah, I think about, he had five foods total. And um, so I was very new, obviously not uh, managing his case at that point, um, but was um, under the advisement of a BCBA. And we began working on new foods with him and the foods that were selected, I remember were chicken nuggets and French fries. And I just remember myself at a younger age, just thinking, why on earth would you pick these kind of junky foods when you have a child who has so few foods in their repertoire and um and that said over time you know that wasn't my decision so we went with it and this child made progress and we actually got to a later point in the case where it turned out we were now going to be going out into the community and to mcdonald's to be working on eating those foods there and what ultimately this resulted in was the biggest goal for this family which was they wanted to be able to go out and eat with their child. And so I, I was lucky enough to still be working with him when they actually finally went out as a family to have their first meal out. He was, I think, about eight years old at the time. So they had, you know, never eaten out since his diagnosis of autism at a young age. And that was just such a powerful lesson for me in terms of kind of 
taking my initial judgment around what those goals are. And it's just such a, an important reminder to me that um, while I did mention, you know, it's great to have a nutritionist involved and you, you want to make sure that medically that child's okay. I'm not the one that should be making the judgment call as the clinician of what that child, you know, necessarily needs to be eating and that that family piece is so important because if for some, you know, had I been the one in charge, that moment might never have happened for that family. And, and it was just such a really incredible milestone to get to see as a young clinician. That is awesome. That, I mean, I think we forget too that parents, you know, what's significant to them may not be significant to us. And sometimes it's like, no, we need the healthy stuff. We need the broccoli. We need the green beans. We need, you know, the chicken breasts, but something is, as what may seem simple to another family is paramount to this family. So that's, thank you for sharing. No, I just wanted to talk about, I have, I've had uh, multiple kids who um, they're at that stage when they're, you know, a toddler and they want to be in control and, but they have these sensory differences where they don't want to touch certain textures of food. Mm -hmm. And, um, but then they don't want mom and dad spoon feeding them. And so I've tried, so it took me a, a while to try to figure out how can I help these kids because they want to be independent, but they're not quite there and they're not really good with the spoon yet, but I've had to learn to think out of the box, kind of not always follow those developmental milestone charts like we, we have been taught to do and think, okay, but maybe they can use a fork. And so I started presenting a fork earlier in, in the development and I found some of these little forks and I'm not promoting a particular company or not, but they're really cute and they are... <laughs> small and easy to hold. And I have had so many kids go from not eating or doing, uh, you know, demonstrating some challenging behaviors during mealtime to where you give them that, or I've even like um, taken those little, um, a little, like almost like little toothpicks. And if they could stab that, and then obviously with supervision and feed their self any way they can and be more independent. And then their food acceptance has drastically improved and then families are happy and they're all cheering and they're sending me videos of their kids eating with this little tiny fork and everybody has um you know they've they've reached a milestone and they've reached a goal and we all know about behavior momentum and then it just seems like things continue to be positive from from that point i see i wouldn't have thought to use a toothpick as an eating utensil so that's awesome <laughs> that is really awesome dr peterson I was trying to recall, I have, you know, a lot of, you know, um, attachments with the little ones I've worked with. So I had all these stories pop in my head, but I was like, I could go on and on. Um, but one notable thought I had was to tie in kind of like a take home message from me and with a story is that, especially for providers working with children with autism and food selectivity, uh, one way that our group has sort of been looking at it lately is, you know, there's a lot of factors that contribute to the development of a feeding disorder. You know, we've talked about complex medical histories or choking phobias mm -hmm. or all kinds of things. Um, and for children with autism, you know, we've, we've begun as a group, as a research team talking about uh, resistance to change as one of the hallmark characteristics of autism and how many children have this, you know, rigidity with a lot of different things in their day, whether it's the same routine they take to school, the same clothes they're wearing every day, or the same foods that they're eating every day. Um, and so something we recently did, uh, we, this kind of was brought to light with one of our recent patients who um, he was coming in every day for treatment for his food selectivity. Um, and we noticed just 
randomly that he was wearing the same Thomas the Train t-shirt and the same Nike mesh black shorts. And we didn't really notice it until it was December 15th in Omaha, Nebraska, where it is, you don't wear mesh shorts and a t-shirt. Right. And um, so we asked the mom, you know, is, we didn't realize this was happening. And she said, oh yeah, I, I have three outfits of the same kind. I have to wash them, you know, every single night and but it's fine. We get through. And so, you know, we're, we're like, well, let's put a pin in that. Let's keep working on this food stuff. And what we observed, we didn't directly intervene on his, um, on his rigidity with the clothing, but we noticed after we observed this change in his behavior with eating, he started taking bites of his peas, his hot dog, his macaroni and cheese, his carrots. And then we noticed he started wearing different clothes to, to therapy on day after day. And so we brought it up again and she said, yeah, he just, you know, he started, it seems as though he's just more flexible. I don't know what happened. I didn't do anything. And, um, and so I'm not claiming anything that we, <laughs> we somehow magically fixed this rigidity, but I think it's something interesting to think about as a clinician going in to kind of look at what's happening in the overall picture, to be observant of different things, not just, you know, get honed in on this one goal, but kind of be observant about different things that are happening. And, whether something you're doing directly could have indirect beneficial effects. Um, right. And, you know, to be kind of observant of those things and in, in how you're going about your practice. That's cool. That is so cool. Like I would have, I don't think I would have noticed, you know, well, until it was winter in Nebraska, <laughs> this kiddo wearing the same shorts every day, um, you know, cause you're just like, oh, you're here to work. Let's go work. Let's go play. Let's do, you know, what we're here to do. And the kid is still wearing shorts in the middle of winter. So I'm glad that there was some behavioral change that, you know, that happened as a result of, you know, working on the food selectivity and things like that. That's really awesome. So um, to wrap up, I want to thank each of you ladies for agreeing to come on the podcast, for giving us your wisdom and for giving us your, your background, your, your knowledge, your information, because it's so valuable just as a clinician, knowing, you know, talking with you guys has given me a different perspective on feed, on feeding and food selectivity, some things I honestly didn't ever think about, you know, like something as simple as using a toothpick to feed somebody like that to me is like, duh, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> so I want to thank each of you. If there's no parting words, um, we're going to wrap up the, the uh, podcast on today. Please like, sub subscribe, and share. And if, feel free to reach out to us on social media at Life with ABA on Instagram and on Facebook. Let's continue the conversation. Look for a new post on Facebook, on Facebook for uh, feeding and food selectivity and share your thoughts. Let us know how you feel about this podcast and have this particular episode. And if you have any uh, questions for any of our panelists today, let us know. We will we'll definitely forward those questions on to each of them as, as, as needed. So thank you again. And we'll see you next time on Life with Behavior Analysis Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Life with Behavior Analysis Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and share. Also, make sure you check out our website for more content. See you next time. Bye!